Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. All right, let's try it again. Good morning. (laughs) So we're continuing this series called Elephants in the Church. Again, we've talked about this quite a bit that an elephant in the church is it's kind of a topic that's out there, a looming topic that everybody seems to know about, but nobody seems to want to talk about. And we've uh, looked at a lot of different topics like that. But one thing we've learned is that, you know, these topics should not be avoided, you know, that a healthy church doesn't seek to avoid these topics, but kind of seeks to understand them a little bit more, to, to ideally tame them. And we have a good guide for that. We have a good guide at Paul's letter to the First Corinthians. And we're going to be looking at that again today at First Corinthians chapter 11, starting about verse 17. We'll get that in a few minutes. Anyway, we have been looking at a lot of elephants in the church, and we're actually winding down this series on elephants in the church, which is good news. But the bad news is I've got all these little elephants that I don't know what to do with that are left over. And so I thought, you know, is there somebody here as a little little girl, little boy that would love an elephant? Anybody? There you go. This one fortunately says freedom. The one last service I gave away said sexuality and that... uh, (laughs) Poor Kate Miller was stuck explaining that to little Charlie. And so, you're welcome. There's more to come. <laughs> you're welcome. And so anyway, we've been looking at all these different issues. And, and this week and really next week, we're going to be looking at the elephants that appear kind of in the, in the context of a worship setting. Actually, today we're going to look at divisions that occurred within the context of the Lord's Supper, of all things, also known as communion. So anyway, we're going to look at this section here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 33. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then I go into the part that we're all familiar with where it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats, drinks, and drink, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick. A number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. 
so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Again, a lot of stuff there. You know, you're probably familiar with the chunk in the middle, but a lot of the stuff that kind of bookends it, it sounds quite different. In fact, it sounds kind of weird. But as we learned in the last few weeks, you know, some of these passages that are difficult to relate to actually have some good lessons in them. And hopefully by the end of today, we'll, we'll be able to glean a, a good principle or two uh, from that passage. But we have to start by kind of giving some background exactly what's going on. And if you were paying attention, you know that this passage looks like it takes place not only in the Lord's Supper, but in a larger meal context, larger, larger eating context. And that's quite common back then. Uh, you know, we know that people were always eating in that first century just as they are today. You know, contrary to what some people think, you know, the potluck didn't start in the 21st century. It really started back there in the first century. And these were basically meals that were very a part of the growing church, a very important part and part where people got to know, understand each other or to, to develop a, a relationships with each other and deepen a relationship even with God. And these were all good things. This is what we refer to as fellowship. And the thing that was neat about those meals, they were really designed to help the people out, the, the people that couldn't afford the food or couldn't, couldn't make, always have the elaborate meals that some of the more wealthy people would have. And this was, again, there was a reason why uh, they did this. These were actually called, had a name to them. They were called agape meals. Agape is the Greek word for love. And see, these were called love meals, basically love feasts, because it was an opportunity for the different saints to kind of share with each other, especially those in needs. And we see that even today in the, in the, in the, the, gathering, that, the gathering that we call the discipleship communities. But we know that as good as some things are, they often get spoiled, that things can go wrong, you know, that there could be uh, something, uh, some unfavorable element entered in, could enter into those type of positive environments. And that's what we see going on here, you know, so much so that, that basically Paul begins to say, you know, what you're doing, those gatherings are causing more harm than good. And so he writes, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. And so we know from this whole series that, that Paul and the church of Corinth, they were no strangers to division, to divisive issues. And now he speaks to these divisive issues happening within the context of meetings. Now, the word that we translate meetings is very much like the, the meeting that we experience in a, a worship gathering. They add, they actually, the underlying word has to do with assembling or gathering together. It doesn't always, it's not really a religious term. And so the term we translate meeting would also be a term that would be, be used for other type of gatherings. It could be a political gathering, it could be a trade association, it could be some sort of a cult, it could be a club, just a club. And these meetings would include people from all sorts of, uh, of background, and it would include the rich, the poor, the slave, and the free, you know, all the different social strata. And really what they would be used for is primarily kind of networking and socializing together, kind of like the way some of you guys are, in, and when women, you men and women are into different groups around the city. Now, Paul, being somebody who worked with leather and did tent making, it was likely that he was also part of one of these trade associations. So he would be very familiar with them. And what we also see in the first century is that there was a, not a lot of difference between the meetings in the church and the meetings in the, in the town at these other different associations, or at least from the appearance, from the surface, because 
the church at that time, remember, didn't have a temple, didn't have a steeple or anything like that, didn't have priests, didn't have uh, uh, sacrifices, and also had a lot of different people from different social strata that would be attending there. And so it'd be easy for somebody, especially a new believer, to be a little confused about the, the difference between these, these two meetings. Because again, they look so much alike, especially when they began to see that some of the stuff that was happening at the other meetings was filtering into the church meetings, particularly how, specifically how they were beginning to basically uh, create, again, uh, social strata or different uh, divisions related to uh, social status. In other words, you had a division probably between the rich and the poor, uh, the, the free and the slave. You had all these different divisions that were being created that was causing a problem. And the problem we see in this particular passage is a problem that was, again, was happening within the context of a meal setting. And so we read that when Paul writes, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for any, anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Again, it sounds weird until you begin to understand a little bit more about the situation during that time. Again, this is the early stage of Christianity. You had all sorts of people coming to faith, rich and poor. And what would happen is they had to have meeting places. And so a lot of times the wealthy people, the wealthy believers, they would allow the rest of the believers to use their house. In some cases, these were very nice houses. These would be what we would consider nowadays like a, like a villa. I found a picture of what that might look like. I found that online. It was a, this is kind of a picture of a very nice villa. And so what we have here is an area that's called the triclinium. And this is the area here called the atrium. Now, the triclinium was basically was named because it was basically three couches around a particular table. This would be the area, kind of the exclusive area where the people would, uh, would basically, the, uh, the friends and the, and the family members of the owner would probably sit. This was the place, the banquet area, that, where you would have these elaborate meetings. You would have these, these dinners that would include entertainment, that would include uh, philosophical discussion, and a lot of food and beverage. And so you had that particular area, but the problem with that area was it only could seat about 9 to 12 people. And sometimes you'd have 50 or more people coming to this gathering. And so the other people would spill over into this area. It's the atrium. You're familiar with the word atrium. Uh, you may not be familiar with tri triclinium, but the atrium is basically where everybody else would go that were not able to get into the triclinium, so to speak. And so you had these Christians, you know, the, the owners of the house or the host, hostess, who would basically be forced to kind of make decision. Who's going to go in the triclinium? And they would often pick the people that, again, were their favorites, were their best friends, were their family members, were their particular associates, the business associates, that sort of thing. And we can imagine that caused a lot of problems, especially given the fact that after or during a meeting, a meal, you know, the people in the triclinium would be served first. And a lot of times they would bring their own food. They would bring some very nice food and they would bring their wine and that sort of thing. And so by the time the food got back, all the way back to the person in the corner of the atrium, there would be nothing left. And they would walk away hungry, and they were the poorest people, you know, in the room. And so you can imagine this was beginning to cause some problems, some discontent, some, some divisions. Again, this is a picture of what the triclinium might have looked like, because, again, you got about nine people that would fit around this particular table enjoying themselves. 
And I was trying to think of a, of a kind of a modern illustration. And I began to think about, you know, the, when we break at the end of the service, you know, we head over to this place called Cafe Connect. In case you're wondering, if you're visiting here, you move those ugly green doors and you go into this area called Cafe Connect. Now, just imagine it's the end of the service and I, you know, I do my announcements and I say, thank you for coming and please stick around and fellowship with us, you know, as we go into Cafe Connect. But I say, we're going to do this in order here. We're going to pick with the, you know, first can go the leaders, the elders, the trustees, the deacons. And when they get over there, then you can begin to go. The rest of you could go. Or I could pick it by membership. You know, the people that have been members the longest, well, they get to go first. And the people that haven't been a member very long or not members at all, yeah, they could just kind of come in later. And what would happen, a lot of times there would be no food left, right? And, you know, I would never do something like that, right? The actuality, though, that happens all the time. But not because we're trying to, you know, uh, cause divisions. It's really the idea that some people are assigned to bring snacks, And what happens is they forget to bring the snacks, right? And not only that, what happens is the people that have little kids, they don't monitor their kids. And so before you know it, they're running over there, taking all the Oreos and those wonderful peanut-filled pretzels, the peanut butter-filled pretzels, and chowing them all down. So by the time the older folks like me get over there, there's nothing left to eat, right? (laughs) It went over better in the first service. (laughs) Anyway, all kidding aside, this, this... You've got to remember, all this is happening not simply within a normal meal. It's happening within what we would call the Lord's Supper. And, and, you know, we have to think about now when we practice the Lord's Supper or participate in the Lord's Supper, it's part of this service. We do it at the end of the service. It's separate from a meal. But for them, for the first century church, it was often a part of the meal. It was often before, uh, conducted before the meal or after the meal, sometimes right in the middle of the meal. And the fact that Paul mentions that there were people getting drunk suggests that maybe it happened after even a, a drinking-type party. And so the bottom line is you had the haves and the have-nots being separate. You had the, 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 the have-nots being uh, discriminated against, so to speak. And again, coming in and getting the leftovers or getting nothing and going away hungry. And so this is creating this division, and, and, and Paul being the the founding pastor, he was probably a little bit nervous about this because, again, he's getting this in a letter and thinking, well, this can cause really a problem in the church. This can destabilize the early church. And so Paul, in his own gracious way, he basically slams him. You know, he goes on to say, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? I like the way uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the book, The Message, where he writes, I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you, why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you and would stoop to this. And I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. Again, Paul's here slamming him. And it, but after a while, he begins to think of probably, you know, okay, well, how can I say this? How can I get them to understand this a little bit better so they, they will act more appropriately around the Lord's Supper? And he just goes on and basically reminds them or instructs them as a teacher really what communion is all about. And that's when we hear those lines that we're familiar with, you know, that we hear almost every week during communion where Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As a side note, when he says, For what I received from the Lord, I also passed it on to you, it probably wasn't received by some sort of direct revelation. It's basically saying, again, the stuff had been, this tradition of, of the Lord's Supper had been passed down, you know, all these different years. And he's passing it on. He's passing tradition on just as we receive it today. You know, basically, and what he's doing, he's tying it back to the actual night. Uh, the origin of the Lord's Supper is back at the, the original night uh, where Jesus was sitting around with his disciples the night that he was going to be arrested. And so Paul's tying this communion back to a very historical event, a very historical memory. And a point to where, again, Jesus said at this point, he said, he said, he took bread and he says, take and eat this and this is my body and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the juice or the, in their case, the wine and he, he, he shared about this is my blood. This is the uh, new covenant that has been ratified basically in my blood. And so again, Paul's just trying to do a little bit of instruction of why we do it this way, why we celebrate communion. And it's a very, very reverent thing. But on another side note is that Still, some of the people could have been a little bit confused because what was going on in, that, in these words or in that actual event, you know, people may confuse with another type of uh, meal that would be happening out in the, the different associations, and particularly the pagan associations, where you would have people that part of their will would be that there would be an annual feast, an annual celebration of their life after they died. And so they would leave... A stip, uh, they would leave a, a stipend along with a stipulation that says, every year I want you to make sure you have this, this funeral dinner to celebrate me, celebrate my honor. But again, Paul would clarify and say, you know, this is, when we do the Lord's Supper, we're not celebrating, we're not honoring a dead guy. No, what we're doing is honoring the, the live, a living God, the living Christ, living Christ, the one who had been raised from the dead on the third day. I like how this guy named Leonard Vanderzee says it. He says, the Lord's Supper is more than a faded memory of a long-gone person. It brings us his life-giving presence. It brings us his life-giving presence. Communion is not just another name for the Lord's Supper. It describes the very presence of what takes place. Christ brings us into a special communion with himself and with each other so that his life and saving power nourishes our bodies and our souls. Again, not just honoring a dead guy, which I think sometimes we get confused and we'd be thinking about that, well, this is just honoring the dead guy. But really, again, what I like how he uses the word presence over and over, as if Christ's real presence is there in the communion. In the Lord's Supper. Not in the way that the Roman Catholics tend to think it, that, you know, that Christ is somehow actually physically present in the, in the bread or in the juice or in the wine. No, but that he's present amongst us by way of his spirit. That somehow that he participates with us as we participate with him. In fact, Paul talks about this participation when he says, it's not, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks and participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. So Paul talks about this participation. And he said, well, what, what exactly is going on there? I said, I, I don't know. And I'm not sure Paul knows exactly enough to explain it. The bottom line, he doesn't explain it. He just accepts it. That there's some deep level of participation 
with Christ and with us. It goes on during the act of communion. And again, this this further just emphasizes that we're talking about a, a really deep spiritual thing that is happening during the time of communion, so deep that, that Paul says, you know, you've got to be careful if you're, you're taking this in an unworthy way because what you're doing is you're, somehow you're kind of sinning against the actual body and blood of Christ. And that's why we go on to write, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's serious stuff. Very serious. So serious that Paul says, you know, you've really got to take time. Before you take communion, you should take a time and really examine yourself. You know, he writes, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. In other words, what he's suggesting is that you do a, a heart check. You kind of test your heart. And you've got to make sure that your heart is right so that you will not be subject to, to judgment by God. Again, strong words, but Paul makes it pretty clear that some people were taken in an unworthy way. And they were being judged by God to the point of getting sick. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. The idea of falling asleep means have died. And this is a tough passage. It's a, it's a weird passage. It's a troubling passage. You know, you say, what was going on here? Was God really somehow judging them, disciplining them? because of the people's hearts, were, they were taking communion in such an unworthy way. I haven't found anything that says no. I mean, and I looked. I was hoping to find something that would kind of give us an escape clause, but I couldn't find it. And so he's saying, you know, man, you take that communion, you take the Lord's Supper in an unhealthy way. These people, you know, they were subject to being sick. They were subject to being ill. Some of them were dying over it. And all this, just if anything, it seems to highlight the importance, the high value that God and Jesus himself places on this action, this ordinance of communion. You know, again, in a way that, uh, you have, that you would not take communion lightly, that you would not take it in an unworthy type fashion. Because if you do, again, we, we would see a pattern. We see a pattern of, uh, of God disciplining these people. In this particular way. And so again, it's, it gives us check in our spirit to make sure that we are taking the communion in a very worthy way. And so basically, Paul kind of winds it all up by saying, so then my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. What he's basically saying, I've probably got more to say around this area, I'm just going to let this settle in for a while. Anyway, that's kind of the, the context the, the, that we celebrate communion currently, you know, and we often just focus on that, that centerpiece there that, that talks about, again, the, what is going on there. But there's probably really a lot more going on there than, than we realize. And, and as we get to start winding down this sermon, you know, you read this again or you read it on your own, you begin to think, well, what, are this, what in this can really apply to me? I mean, I can't connect. I can't relate to these agape meals. I can't relate to this drinking before and after the service, whatever it is. How can I connect with any of this? Well, even though we can't, you know, we don't find, uh, we find a lot of it not relevant to us today. One thing we should be able to find relevant is the whole idea that I think many of us, including myself, almost on a regular basis, we probably take communion 
in an unworthy manner. And that's a shame because I think of the two ordinances or sacraments, or whatever you want to call it, that are most important in the church, in our church, is really baptism by immersion and the Lord's Supper. That's really probably the two key ordinances in all, in any what we call evangelical churches, the uh, communion and the Lord's Supper, because it's communion that kind of unites us with Christ in a very, you know, uh, very spiritual way, uh, using a lot of imagery, but it's also communion that we, we maintain that ongoing union with Christ, really on a weekly basis. And again, it was a very spiritual thing when, when Jesus did say, when he took those two elements, when he took the bread and he took the wine, and he, and he said, you know, do this in remembrance of me, he was creating, again, this very, very spiritual, significant event that was meant to be passed on and passed on down the line. And if we take it worthy in a worthy way, it can actually have the possibility of beginning to shape us, begin to transform us, really on a weekly basis, as we go through the discipline, really, of taking communion. But again, in order to do that, we have to make sure that we are taken in a worthy way. And the way we do that is really going back or thinking again about Paul's word, that we need to examine ourselves to make sure everything's okay, you know, with us. Particularly examine our heart, and you say, well, how do I do that? How, how can I really examine myself? Does it just mean that i got to think about the crucifixion or think about how bad I am or that sort of thing? Not necessarily. Again, I think there's, it's quite easy to examine yourself you know, really in a few minutes. And that's what I want to do today as we begin to wind up the service. What I want to do is kind of give three ways to think about how you might examine yourself, that you might look upward, inward, and outward. You know, and these three ways, again, will, will not only give us a possibility, the opportunity to examine our heart, but also serve as a reminder for who Jesus is and what he did do for us on the cross. So basically, as Debbie does some background music, you know, what I'd like you to do, if you're willing, to just close your eyes and just reflect on some of these questions that I'm going to give you to help you kind of look upward, inward, and outward. And if you're, not, if you're someone who doesn't like to reflect on anything, I would just say close your eyes anyway if you don't mind. And just if you fall asleep, just try not to snore. That would be helpful. And this will just take a couple minutes, but it's going to prepare our hearts and our minds for receiving communion. Again, the first way we want to examine ourselves is, is upward. We want to answer the question, how are you and God doing? How's your relationship with God? Now, some of you would maybe say, my relationship with God is awesome. You know, I feel really connected to him. Everything's good. We're, Jesus and I, we're tight. Everything's happening. I just see his blessings. I see his, his answers to prayer. I see all these things. Well, other people might say, you know what? I don't feel connected with God at all. I feel there's a lot of uh, disconnect, actually, between God and I. In fact, there's, I, I almost feel a little bit abandoned by God, that God is not hearing my prayers whatsoever. And so if you're someone who feels connected to God, I would just say in quietness of your own heart, just say, thank you. Thank you, God. Praise God for that. That is a good thing. Enjoy it. But I also say that if you're someone who's feeling a little bit disconnected with God, maybe just thank God also. Thank God because you know that you are in the company or you're in good company. That when you go to communion, when you participate with communion, communion is about union with each other, but also with Christ the one who felt totally abandoned on a cross. 
the one that said, Lord, oh Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? So again, celebrate the fact that you are in union with the one who understands what it feels like to be distant from God. And also be reminded that, you know, just because you don't feel that connection does not mean that you're not. Again, all of us were separated from God. We had this barrier between us because of sin. But again, as a reminder, the cross broke down that barrier, broke down that wall so that we can't, so all the hostility between us and God had been eliminated, and that we can now have peace with God. And that we can know for beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is made available through Christ Jesus. So just think about that for a few seconds. How's your relationship with God? The next, we're going to look inward, a little bit deeper inward. We're going to look inside and say, you know, my question is, how is your soul? How is your soul? Specifically, you know, is there any blockage there? Is there any obstacles between you and God? What is preventing you from getting closer to God? What type of sin may be in your life right now that you just got to get rid of? You know, it's like, it could be anything. I mean, there's a lot of different types of sins. It could be something as simple as pride, you know, having an attitude. It could be, it could be lust. It could be jealousy. It could be envy. It could be something like gluttony or even laziness or addictive behavior. Again, these would become obstacles to you having a, a good relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so if, you, if you're sitting there and you begin to, something like that comes to your mind, just confess it. Confess it. And receive the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, that's a reminder that in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, for each one of us. And as the psalmist talks about, the idea is that as far as the east is from the west, so have your sins been removed from you, again, through Jesus Christ. But again, while we're looking inward, don't just think about all the bad things you've done. Don't just think about the sin in your heart. Think about whether or not you really have, think of yourself the way God thinks of you. In other words, where you've aligned yourself with his way of looking at you. Because a lot of people, they have a, a bad concept of yourself. Maybe been Christian for years, but still just can never be good enough. A lot of self-condemnation. But again, this is a reminder that if anybody is in Christ, like the Corinthians later says, in, or like Paul later says in 2 Corinthians, if anybody is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That you are a new creation in Christ. Which means that your identity does not come with who you are or what you do on this earth, but who you, you are and what you do or what you will do in heaven. Again, as you are a child of God, a new creation, sons or daughter of the king. And so again, how's your soul? And then finally, you know, we want to look outward. We want to look at outward when I, I primarily within even the, the body, the body of believers. Again, the issue going on with, in Corinth was that the people were being exclusive. You know, they were, some people were in the triclinium, the other people were left in the atrium. You know, we don't do that. 
physically, but we're all guilty of, I think, of doing it mentally. That we basically, we come, we keep ourselves, we keep our close friends, we keep the people that think like us in the triclidium, but the other ones we basically relegate out to the atrium. People that maybe have a different skin color, maybe they have a different economic status, maybe they have a different political status, maybe they have, again, different uh, uh, ethnicity, maybe they're a different age, a different mental capacity, whatever. Again, that's where we're, we, we're guilty of maybe excluding people and pushing them, in, pushing them aside because they don't meet up to our criteria of who is acceptable. But again, as we come to the cross, we're reminded, as we come to the table, we're reminded that the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the great leveler. It's a great leveler because we know, we're told in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're all justified freely through Jesus Christ. It's that leveler. All Christians, we're at the same, same level. Again, we are sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God. And so we don't look for the worst in each other. We look for the best in each other. We see the image that we've all been created in, but somehow has got pushed away because of cultural influences, family influences, whatever. Again, we see each other as having a phenomenal value. So again, we look up, we look in, and we look out. And again, those are three things, three simple things, that, three simple ways that we can make sure that our heart is right, but can also make sure that we're doing what Jesus said. We're being reminded of the event on the cross, what it means about Jesus, what it means to us even. And I think if you've gone through that exercise, even in a, for a brief few seconds or a minute or so, I think you could also feel comfortable that, at least for today, you can feel that you're receiving the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And so if you've done that, the only thing left to do is really, again, read through Paul's section where he talks about, again, what communion is all about, where he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.